This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. This evening, more than a thousand people are expected to attend a town hall in Denver for Republican Senator Cory Gardner. Here's the catch, though. He won't be there. It's one of several events this week organized by anti-Trump activists to highlight Gardner's positions and his lack of open public events. CPR's Sam Brash has been looking into this effort and what the state's congressional delegation has been doing while they're on break this week. Welcome to the program, Sam. Hey, Nathan. All right. These mock town halls, which are really kind of protest, have also been put on in Fort Collins and Boulder. Who's behind them? Yeah, the network leading the charge here is called Indivisible. Uh, They're all over Colorado. There's over 100 of these groups, and they've mostly sprung up since the election to resist the Trump administration. And these mock town halls, they're they're straight out of the Indivisible playbook. They uh, want Congress members to either have to face angry crowds or to take heat for avoiding them. And that's what Indivisible is doing with Gardner, correct? Making an issue out of his not holding a town hall? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I went to an Indivisible event last week where they dropped off a petition calling for a town hall with Gardner. Uh, I met Ranger Miller there. He's an airline pilot, and I asked him if he could understand why Gardner wouldn't want to hold a town hall and set himself up for bad publicity. If you get elected, then you you get elected by a certain amount of people, but the other people are still your constituents. You still have to represent them, and you should go out and talk to them. And if it it's a little bit bruising sometimes, well, that's democracy, man. You need to get out there and play the game. Well, how is Gardner responding to this pressure? Well, his office has met with some of the protesters, and this week uh, during the recess, he's been traveling the state to meet with industry, industry groups and some constituents on like targeted in- issues uh, like the aerospace industry. He also spoke at the Governor's Agriculture Forum. Uh, afterwards, Joe St. George with Fox 31 News asked about his schedule. So as of right now, no plans to hold a town hall? Uh, look, we've had a number of teletown hall opportunities. We've had a number of opportunities to go to open forums. But no in-person town halls. So, so we're going to continue working on uh, meetings where we get to meet Coloradans across the state. That's what we're doing today. That's what we're doing uh, tomorrow. We'll continue to do it throughout the week. So even with all this pressure, he's not committing to a live in-person event at this point. I see. So what are other members of Colorado's delegation doing? Are, are any of them holding town halls this week? Yeah, not really. Uh, only Representative Ed Perlmutter, a Democrat, has a public community event planned this week. Uh, He'll be answering questions from constituents at a library in Thornton on Saturday. Uh, Republican Representative Mike Kaufman has been touring his district to hear ideas about how to repeal and replace Obamacare. He didn't hold any public events, though. Uh, So town halls didn't really happen over the recess. Is it unusual for Congress people to hold so few public forums during a week-long break? Yeah, so Vice News looked nationwide, and mm-hmm. they found that Republicans in Congress are holding far fewer in-person town halls compared to this time last year. Keep in mind, though, that last year was an election year, and town halls are common campaign events. And even though they aren't holding public events, uh, several representatives do have upcoming telephone town halls. All right, these telephone town halls. How do these work? Yeah, so telephone town halls are like massive conferences calls. Republican Representative Ken Buck held one last night. People signed up beforehand on his website, and then at a set time, they got a phone call. I'm hosting a live telephone town hall right now, and I hope you will join me. Please stay on the line, and you will be instantly connected with me and other folks from across our congressional district. People press zero to record a question. Some are chosen to talk to the congressman. Uh, Karen from Douglas County submitted a question on health care. Then she uh, actually shifted topics when she got connected with the representative. I am so concerned with the rise of the neo-Nazi movement and the white supremacists in America right now. And here's how Buck responded. 
Take another question. Yeah, if you didn't catch that, he said just take another question. So these are pretty tightly controlled events. Are these telephone events popular with the Colorado uh, delegation? Yeah, uh, they are. Uh, Representative Polis, a Democrat, had two last week. Uh, Representatives Mm -hmm. Tipton and Perlmutter have telephone town halls planned. Senator Gardner has said that he probably will hold one in the near future. Congress people say they're an easy way to get the pulse of people all across the state. But they don't satisfy the indivisible activists, right? (laughs) Yeah, no. Uh, not at all. They complain that the questions are often pre-screened. Often, also, Congress people don't announce when they'll hold the teletown hall. So you sign up online, and then maybe you get an unexpected conference call from a senator at work, and you can't take it. So they just aren't the same opportunities for public pressure or media attention as compared to, say, like an in-person event. All right. Other than town halls or a lack of them, what has Colorado's delegation been up to this week? Well, uh, four out of the nine of them are actually out of the country. Democratic Senator Michael Bennett is in Cuba and Colombia to discuss trade. Representative Diana DeGett, another Democrat, is in Japan. Republican Representatives Scott Tipton and Doug Lamborn are both meeting with the German Bundestag. Uh, That's the German parliament. I just kind of wanted to say Bundestag (laughs) on the radio. But in any event, uh, this week, the delegation is really picking up a lot of frequent flyer miles. They're flying around the world. All right. So that's what Colorado's delegation was up to this week. Do they have any public events planned in the next few months? Uh, Yeah, a few. Representative Jared Polis, again, a Democrat, has town halls planned for next month in Boulder and Fort Collins. Representative DeGette will apparently hold a community event in the coming weeks as well. Uh, Kaufman says he'll hold one in April. That should be really interesting. He's in a swing district where Indivisible is very active. So plenty to come. But for now, the delegation is heading back to Washington to get back to work on Monday. All right. Thanks, Sam. Thank you, Nathan. That's CPR's Sam Brash. You can read more about the delegation and see dates for their upcoming public events at cprnews.org. Who can use what bathroom is once again in the political spotlight. Earlier this week, the White House announced it's revoking an Obama-era directive. The U.S. Education and Justice Departments jointly issued the guidance last year. It told public schools to allow transgender students to use the restrooms and locker rooms that match their gender identity. Daniel Ramos of the LGBTQ advocacy group One Colorado is concerned the new administration's move puts transgender students in a vulnerable position. Jeff Hunt sees this differently. He is vice president of public policy at Colorado Christian University in Lakewood. Jeff, Daniel, welcome to the program. Thank you. Great to be with you, Nathan. Daniel, in an official statement, Education Secretary Betch DeVos said the previous administration's guidance raised too many legal questions. Uh, she adds there's no, quote, immediate impact to students by rescinding the guidance. What do you think of the notion that the federal guidance was confusing and hard to implement? Yeah, so I think that the, the really the statement from Secretary DeVos on the impacts of rescinding the guidance um, are much more uh, are, are much more than just practical. Um, it really sends a message um, from this administration that transgender young people and their safety in schools doesn't in fact matter. And we've also seen that, you know, L- uh, the Trump administration vowed to protect LGBT people during the campaign. Um, and this is just another example of him turning his back on a community that he promised to protect. Now, here in Colorado, uh, there is already state legislation protecting transgender individuals from discrimination in public places, and that includes schools. What could this order from the Trump administration mean for Colorado schools legally? So legally in Colorado, um, and this is based on a law passed in 2008, the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Bill, 
um, which, as you mentioned, does protect p- people in places of public accommodation, which includes schools. Um, and two, that the that the, uh, the Department of Regulatory Agencies has also agreed that this, this does allow students to participate um, in activities, athletics, and use facilities that correspond with their gender identity. We've also seen here in Colorado that many education associations, including the Colorado Association of School Boards, the Colorado Association of School Executives, the Colorado Education Association, the Charter School League, and also the Colorado High School Activities and Athletics Association agree that transgender students and gender nonconforming students in Colorado schools do have access to facilities, activities, and athletics that correspond with their gender identity. And we should note that school districts like Boulder Valley and districts in Colorado Springs have said they're committed to continuing their policies that support transgender students. Uh, Jeff, in in 2014, when the U.S. Department of Education said transgender students are protected from discrimination under Title IX, which bars discrimination on the basis of sex at any education program or activity that receives federal funds, uh, Colorado Christian University was one of more than 200 faith-based schools that filed an exemption from that. CCU's request said the regulations, quote, curtail the university's freedom to respond to transgender individuals in accordance with its religious convictions. What does that mean? Right. Great question, Nathan. So our religious convictions hold that uh, God created men and women, male and female, and that biology matters, that biology is not bigotry. Um, And so in that light, um, we want to be able to practice our faith openly um, and to be able to uh, make decisions on how uh, men and women are, are um, impl- how they're uh, either kind of segmented out if you have women's sports teams or if you have men's sports teams based upon uh, their biology, not based upon their gender identity. So what you're, what's actually taking place right now is a big paradigm shift as to whether or not discernment is made with regards to bathrooms or to sports based upon gender identity or based upon biological sex. Title IX passed in 1972. Uh, the intent of that, the language that was written into that was the idea that sex is what's used when it comes to discernment on who uses which bathrooms, uh, who can be on a, a women's track team, who can be on a men's track team. Sex was used. What's being advocated now is this notion that gender identity is the determining feature upon which people can either use a bathroom or be be on a sports team. Um, And uh, we felt that the Title IX uh, that was passed in 1972 – Um, For the Obama administration to now make that switch to go from sex to gender identity as the discerning uh, aspect uh, was uh, was unfair. It didn't take in, in fact, unlawful. And that's what the courts were determining. I want to get your thoughts on that, Daniel. He he said a lot there and I want to kind of unwrap that with you. Sure. Yeah. So I think the biggest thing um, and. You know, Title IX, again, protecting people on the basis of sex. Um, What we've seen happen in the courts over the last many, many decades um, is that sex has actually been been ruled to include based on sex stereotyping which is really where the idea of protecting people based on their gender identity comes from. And so with or without the guidance, the courts have already agreed that Title IX, in fact, does include um, discrimination based on sex stereotyping. And that, too, is why... Title IX uh, does cover folks based on their gender identity. So, so you're seeing it as an expansion of the definition of, of sex? Is that what's, what's going on here? Or? 
Yes, yeah, so we've seen the courts interpret it as including um, stereotyping based on sex, which would include um, people being being um, either uh, di- facing discrimination based on being male or being female. Um, and the courts have agreed that that does include folks who face discrimination based on being transgender as well. And Jeff, what are your thoughts on, on that? Well, I think it, it, it's biology. I mean, that that's what the original intent of Title IX in 1972 was written about. Whether or not there's discrimination that's taking place based upon uh, – uh, I'm sorry. What, what, what was the term you called uh, that? Sex stereotyping. Sex stereotyping. I, I don't I – don't, I disagree with that. I don't think mm-hmm. there's sex stereotyping if you go either you're male or female based upon your biology to be on the women's track team. Well, Daniel, is it is it simply that a student says they want to go by a different gender or, or is there a process for a family to notify a school of a change of gender identity? Do you see the, the difference there that it's not just someone saying, well, today I will be? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so typically what we've seen in Colorado and the experience that we've had working with transgender young people and their families is that the families tend to be somewhat involved with the school. And so we recommend really the school working with the student and then determining whether or not or how to involve the family based on whether they are out to their family as transgender or not. But we do see that transgender folks and their families typically work with the school to determine what is best for the student. And the way that the Colorado law was written um, and the rules were written are that it, it that the that it's the gender identity that's consistently held at school. And so uh, to your point is it's not just hey, I'm transgender, it's the gender that's consistently held um, at school. Um, and in many conversations, that does happen with the family, the school, and the transgender young person. White House Press Secretary Son Spicer spoke to reporters about rescinding the Obama administration directive earlier this week. Uh, here's what he had to say. The president has maintained for a long time uh, that this is a states' rights issue uh, and not one for the federal government. So I, I think that all you have to do is look at what the president's view has been for a long time, um, that this is not something that the federal government should be involved in. This is a states' rights issue. Jeff, well, the president says this is a states' rights issue. Some see this as a civil rights issue where the federal government can be involved in. How do you respond to that? Well, um, it, it is a states' rights issue. We've seen here in 2008 that Colorado was able to debate that issue. And that's important. You have to involve parents, teachers, and local school boards in this discussion. Uh, what the Obama administration did was unilaterally side on the side of uh, transgender students without taking into any consideration the thoughts of parents, teachers, or local school boards on this issue. And that's why it's being adjudicated in court. Um, This was an unlawful move by the Obama administration to redefine the word sex uh, written into a law in 1972 in Title IX. Um, What Trump did, he did not force anybody or any school to to come – down on a side of this issue. It was far less authoritarian than than President Obama did. President Trump said, um, we're going to let each school district with parents, with teachers, with local school boards, make this decision within their community. And we're going to hear all sides and we're going to come to terms on this. Whereas um, Obama took a one side approach to this. Daniel. Yeah. So I think the the message that, that, that President Obama sent and too that even here in Colorado as a states' rights issue, um, is that we want to protect our most vulnerable young people. And a lot of the data tells us, whether it's the Healthy Kids Colorado survey or any other data set, um, that, that 
especially transgender young people, are the most vulnerable and targeted in their schools. And so with the leadership of President Obama and interpreting the Title IX guidance to ensure that transgender students and and really all students are protected um, in their schools, and that here in Colorado we have also adopted guidance and policies around best practices and what the law is in working with transgender young people, um, is it's really the way that that President Obama and here in Colorado, we have we have said that we 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 want to stand with transgender young people and make sure that they too have have the ability to fully participate in their school communities. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm speaking with Jeff Hunt. He's vice president of public policy at Colorado Christian University in Lakewood. He also directs the university's conservative think tank, the Centennial Institute, and Daniel Ramos, who you just heard of the LGBTQ advocacy group One Colorado. They're responding to the Trump administration revoking an Obama-era guidance that told schools to let transgender students use the bathroom that matches their gender identity. Uh, Jeff, you were going to say something right before we went to this uh, the, the ID here. Well, I think that... Um there's you, you're looking at the privacy, safety, and dignity of all students, including those students that are working through uh, or transitioning or, or working through transgender issues. And um, we want we want to be able to hear all sides of uh, this debate, um, but that also includes the parents, teachers, and local school boards. And um, it worked here in Colorado in in the sense that. Communities were able to discuss. I think Daniel would say that, um, you know, that the state's rights approach to this was beneficial in Colorado from his perspective. So what I think we're trying to say is that uh, the Obama administration did not do that. They did not include all sides during this conversation. Uh, President Trump is trying to include that. And if you bring it back down to the level of the states, you're going to allow all voices to be heard. But 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 there seems to be that 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 point of civil rights versus state rights. Is that something that you're, you're at least able to, to take a look at and, and, and understand a bit? Well, I think when you're getting down to this, the, the civil rights nature of this debate, um, right now, the, the transgender community is not a protected class in federal law. We're going to find out if that's the case when, when uh, the Supreme Court hears this case out of Virginia in the next few weeks. Um, but uh, uh, the the challenge that we have from a faith community on these on these issues is that we we have a different approach to how you look at and engage with the transgender community and we want to be able to explore those that's why we we sought our exemption um because we look at this world l- listen facebook has 71 different genders that someone can choose from um, the Christian voice into this is to say there's two genders into this. We want to help the transgender community from our perspective and say, you know, uh, pursuing the different routes that, that with 71 different genders may not be the best route. And if you look, if you look at the, our perspective, the voice, the definitional voice that we have into our community is that God created you male or female um, and that healing takes place within that context and we want to be able to share that voice. And I want to note that your school was granted exemption from that guidance uh, last summer. Isn't that correct? It was. That's correct. I, I want to move on to the announcement from the White House um, 
comes just before the Supreme Court considers a case of transgender bathroom access in public schools. Gavin Grimm is a 17-year-old transgender student at a Virginia high school, as you mentioned. He sued his school after it banned him from using the men's restroom. Daniel, how closely are you following this case? And what could the ramifications be here in Colorado since we already have some protections? Yeah, so we are following this case and, you know, any many of the cases that go before the Supreme Court on LGBTQ issues. And, you know, this is one um, where we've seen we've really seen um, educators, administrators, parent groups really come to the table in support of Gavin and saying that he and other students who identify as transgender should, in fact, have access to a bathroom uh, that matches their gender identity. One, because of their safety, um, that that oftentimes transgender young people, as I said, are the most targeted or, or vulnerable in their school populations. Um, and for them to be in a bathroom where they feel unsafe or for them to not be able to fully participate in their school community has lasting effects on the academic opportunities that they have and really the lifetime opportunities that they have. And so so we're following this case very closely because it could have really lasting impacts on transgender young people all across the country. And then also really working through how we respond as a state where we we do already have protections for transgender young people. Um, and we do believe that transgender young people should have access to a bathroom that corresponds with their gender identity. And many of the statewide educo- education associations in Colorado have agreed. But Jeff, I, I understand that, that privacy and safety mm-hmm. is also a concern of yours. Isn't that right? Yeah, absolutely. So what, what this court case out of Virginia is going to force upon this discussion is this when it gets back to this larger um, issue as to whether or not discernment within bathrooms is based upon sex or based upon gender. So the Daniel and the LGBTQ movement still arguing for discrimination when it comes to who gets to choose a bathroom. A cisgender male cannot go into a women's restroom. Right. I mean, that, that correct. that's correct. So there's still discernment and discrimination that's taking place based upon that. What they're saying is that the discernment or discrimination should be based upon um, gender identity. But the challenge that we have with this court case is that it removes those opportunities for negotiation. So what um, they're arguing is that single stall bathrooms, which Mayor Hancock has implemented as a good uh, negotiation when it comes to building here in Denver um, is not good enough when it comes to uh, gender identity within bathrooms. So this uh, this young man uh, in um, in Virginia does not want to be able to use a single stall bathroom. He wants to be able to use the is it the men's restroom? The men's, men's restroom, restroom um, uh, based upon his gender identity and and that inability to find a place of common ground is actually an issue that Neil Gorsuch has brought up and and it, we've we've lost this ability to negotiate and find areas of commonality because we're relying upon the courts to determine these social issues. But there still is that fundamental uh, uh, question of of privacy and safety on both sides, I believe, uh, of this issue. Uh, Daniel, I want to get to this question. We're we're running out of time. When it comes to the university level, transgender students have a lot more ability to select and attend schools that are are welcoming. Uh, Why then do you think a private faith-based school like CCU should be open to the needs of transgender students? They have an exception to the guidance. Yeah, so I think it's it's less of that and it's more about um, our 
are private universities receiving public dollars and are they denying specific students based on their gender identity or their sexual orientation? And so it really is this bigger question of should public dollars be being used to deny services or even in in fact discriminate against people based on their sexual orientation or their gender identity? Now, CCU does accept federal funding. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. And in some shape or form. Right. Primarily through scholarships. Right. And would you... Jeff, at CCU accept or welcome a transgender student? Well, I don't think it would. See, the challenge is you're you're looking at this from two very different worldviews, right? Mm -hmm. So um, Daniel here says that if a student is transgender, and I I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but I'm just trying to look at it from your perspective, that to be able to allow them to live out their transgender um, identity is an important aspect to um, their health and their well-being. From our point of view, we look at it, and we and the same thing with the LGBT, anything within that community, including uh, homosexual issues. Um, we look at that and we go, God has created this world in a certain way. Um, he created men male. He created women female. Their biology matters. Actually, to buy into transgenderism in, in our worldview would be heresy. It gets into the heresy of Gnosticism. Um, and so for us to help a student that is dealing with gender dysphoria is to help them to identify who God created them to be, um, either as male or female, not to support their transition. That would actually be, in our position, um, a a disservice to those students. Now, I want to have Daniel respond to that because what what are your thoughts on what he says? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great point, and I think it's also you know a, a good a, a good uh, good way to talk about you know one of the issues we're working on here in Colorado um, is banning the practice of conversion therapy, which. As Jeff just described, is any effort at changing a sexual a someone's sexual orientation or their gender identity? Uh, because currently, in forty five states, um, it is still legal to practice conversion therapy. And so, we will be working on a piece of legislation this year that would ban that practice and make sure that no state licensed mental health professionals can can use efforts aimed at changing an individual's sexual orientation or their gender identity. Because what many, what most um, major me- medical and mental health associations have said is that conversion therapy, in fact, is not founded in science, and in fact, it does more harm than good. If we look at the, if we look at the consequences of of young people who have experienced conversion therapy, and we look at it, suicidal ideation or uh, attempts of suicide, um, the numbers are alarming. And so that, too, is one of the things we will be working on to make sure that no young person has to be told that who they are or who they love is wrong, bad, and needs to change. And, and we should note there, there were some controversial terms that, that, were, that were used uh, here. I, I want to finally wrap up with you two asking each other questions. I think mm-hmm. it's important that um, you two have that dialogue. So, so let's, you know, Daniel, what questions would you have for Jeff? So I think the bi- the biggest question is um, really, uh, you know, how how a, a private university uh, could could argue that by receiving public funds and denying people um, based on their sexual orientation or, or gender identity, um, sort of welcome uh, that a welcoming environment at the university. Um, why should that be done on the public public dollar? Yeah. Great question. I, for us, uh, we believe that uh, all people should be, able, especially institutions, faith-based institutions, should be able to live out those most deeply held um, values. I think this gets back to what um, Donald Trump just did with regards to the transgender issue. He didn't tell any schools how they should act 
with regards to transgender issues. He says he said that it needs to be done at a local level, and you need to include parents and the and the um, and uh, the teachers and the lo- local school boards to discuss these issues. So I think. Um, Local communities, especially faith-based communities, should be allowed to live according to the dictates of their faith. That's important. And briefly, your question for Daniel. Yeah, my question for Daniel is um, – that's good. You kind of stumped me there, Nathan. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking of of responding. uh, (laughs) Less than a minute. Less than a minute. Uh, So my question to Daniel is – you know, you talked a little bit about suicide and, and the different rates. The people who have gone through surgeries um, are 15 times more likely uh, to die of suicide. Um, do you think that you're open to alternatives other than just embracing uh, trans, the transgender movement to help people that are uh, dealing with gender dysphoria? Yeah, so I think for me, you know, as a non-transgender person, I don't, I don't think that that's my decision to make. I think that in many of the, the transgender folks that we work with and their families, that it's really a decision for them um, to seek the, the medical and mental health services that they need to be who they are and to live their authentic selves. And that's all the time we have. Thanks to the both of you. Daniel Ramos is the executive director of One Colorado, the state's largest LGBTQ advocacy group. And Jeff Hunt is vice president of public policy at Colorado Christian University in Lakewood. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Russia's man in the western United States is in Colorado this week. Sergei Petrov is Russian consul general based in San Francisco. His territory covers eight states, including ours. While he's in town, Petrov is meeting with Governor Hickenlooper, business leaders, and students at Metro State. He says there's great opportunity here, and yet it's a fraught time in U.S.-Russian relations, with findings by American intelligence agencies that Russia tried to influence the election. Petrov spoke with my colleague, Ryan Warner. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm happy to be with you. What makes you think this is the time for improved relations and increased trade between Russia and, I'll say specifically, Colorado? I think it's a time of opportunity. It's a new administration in um, uh, Washington, D.C., and we are very hopeful that we'll be having renewed dialogue with uh, the new administration. But at the same time, um, our attitude towards the United States has always been the same. We consider this country as one of our main partners, be it world politics, be it economy, be it trade. I'll say that the amount of trade between Colorado and Russia is relatively small. Uh, Currently, according to Colorado's World Trade Center, the state exports about $18 million in goods to Russia, imports about $6 million. A big part of Russia's import trade to Colorado is, for instance, airplane and helicopter parts. Colorado, in turn, sends Russia computer components, uh, integrated circuits, that kind of thing. Where do you see opportunities for increased trade? Uh, <laughs> you you did put it pretty diplomatically uh, that uh, our trade is not uh, that big. Uh, I would put it that it's uh, too small for Russia and uh, Colorado, and same goes for our trade uh, with the United States uh, in general. 
I'm sure that we have lots of opportunities here in trade, in investment, in um, having some joint projects. Mm. If we speak of, of what you can take to Russia, uh, Russia in the, it's, is still in the middle of a big economic transition. That would be true about any uh, sector of our economy. So our economy will require lots of machinery, good technology. I think that could be number one. Uh, it's actually number one, as far as I know, in our bilateral trade with Colorado right now. But I think this could um, increase even more. You mentioned uh, transportation equipment, uh, helicopter part and uh, aircraft parts. With Colorado being a very... Uh, well-known state with advanced uh, aerospace industry, I think this is huge potential for the future. It, it, what's interesting is that the U.S. actually purchases an engine called an RD-180, which has been the subject of extended debate in this country. This is a, a rocket engine. Congress has called for an end to their use in the U.S. in five years with the idea of developing American rocket engines to get payloads into space. What would you say in particular about that aspect of aerospace? Yeah, I would say that it's um, a wonderful example uh, what we can do together. Uh, so uh, this project has been going on for like 15 years now. Yeah, and it's connected uh, to, to, let me say, United Launch Alliance in Colorado. Absolutely. And uh, it will be going on for some time, as far as I know. Certainly, it's absolutely sovereign decision for this country to uh, have uh, their own agents and uh, use them to for the space launches. But as far as I know, um, uh, nobody complains uh, about that uh, right now. If we speak about uh, people who are in space industry, everybody's happy because um, uh, Russian engines are first reliable and second cheap. I'll say if there's one man who's interested in an American replacement for the Russian engines, it's Elon Musk at SpaceX, who is uh, in a race to try to develop something cheaper. President Trump has talked about improved relations between the United States and Russia, but he has come under a lot of pressure to take a firmer stance towards your country. Earlier this month, Colorado Senator Cory Gardner and several colleagues wrote to Trump, urging him to pursue, using their words here, a results-oriented but tough-minded and principled policy. Uh, the senator said the president should unequivocally condemn Russian aggression in Ukraine and continue or even add to sanctions now in place against your country. Uh, on the subject of cyber warfare, the letter said that the U.S. must have, again quoting, a firm response to this belligerent behavior from Moscow, possibly including diplomatic and economic action and a stronger military posture in Europe. Uh, this uh, no doubt refers in part to Russian meddling in the election. Uh, does that sound like the basis of a friendlier relationship? You talked about a lot of opportunity here. I think some would, would see that very differently. We have lots of opportunities, lots of potential, including uh, many challenges that we have in the world, be it uh, terrorism, be it uh, nuclear proliferation, 
or proliferations of weapons of mass destruction, cybersecurity, by the way, as well as many even bigger challenges like climate change, like uh, fighting diseases, like protecting our oceans. So we can go on and on with these global challenges that we have. I respect um, every American politician as I respect my uh, Russian politicians. And uh, uh, yes, we are separate sovereign countries and we have every right to have uh, our own decision and our own uh, policy. So no matter what is being said about Russia right now is pretty much proceed from um, not very reliable uh, sources not very reliable uh, information and facts. That's very unfortunate. Uh, Let me say that these are U.S. intelligence agencies. But we can... I just want to interrupt there. These are U.S. intelligence (laughs) agencies. And I guess I'd like to ask fundamentally, do you acknowledge uh, Russian meddling in the American election? Absolutely not. If we speak about uh, Russian government uh, being involved in uh, this kind of hacking, it's absolutely ridiculous. If we are speaking about people from Russia being involved in that, I don't know. Uh, hacking is a universal problem. And uh, uh, by the way, my government has been talking to the U.S. government for several years now, suggesting that we deal with this uh, challenge together. As part of his sanctions in December, uh, then-President uh-huh. Obama expelled 35 Russian government officials, including four employees of your consulate, I believe, uh, saying they were mm-hmm. intelligence operatives involved in trying to influence the election. Did any of those four employees uh, engage in, in espionage to throw the election? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely not. Elections in this country is... Uh, Uh, matter that uh, Americans deal with. You were assigned to the Russian embassy in Washington, D.C. in the 1990s, and you've been in your current post, which is based in San Francisco, actually, since 2013. Um, Sergei Petrov, how do you think the U.S.-Russian relationship today compares to, let's say, when you began? Do do you think it's more tense? Mm, I think that... uh... When I was in Washington, D.C., there was a lot of uh, euphoria on both sides um, after uh, we did away with uh, communism. But it seems like uh, uh, we still have some, um, and it's quite natural, we still have our interests that could be a little bit different. And uh, it's natural for big countries like uh, the United States and Russia uh, with our own histories, traditions, cultures, uh, we're different, and that's the beauty of it. It's like all people uh, are different. Same goes true with uh, countries in the world. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Sergei Petrov is a general consul of Russia, a consul general, rather, of Russia. He's in Colorado this week to promote trade. He spoke to Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
female professional basketball players have dunked just a handful of times in WNBA games, but a sophomore at Regis Jesuit High School in Aurora is doing it, and she's becoming a viral phenomenon. Francesca Bleeby is the first girl to dunk in a Colorado high school basketball game, and she's here along with her coach, Kyle Maddie. Welcome to you both. Thank, Thank you. you. Francesca, how did you first get interested in basketball? Um, I've been watching basketball since I was maybe six or seven. Um, the NBA, college, and it's just been something I was like, wow, I could be good at that. I, I, I'm pretty tall. Um, so I always asked my parents and kind of bothered them about it for a couple of years, but um, they're super busy. So I was like, OK, I'll just wait till high school. And you do wait until high school. And this whole thing begins with you attending an open gym session at Regis. Coach, how did you first hear about Francesca and her dunking abilities? So I was at home and my phone beeped and my two assistant coaches texted me and said, do you know who Francesca Belibi is? And I put back no. And well, she's dunking in the gym. I said, send me a video, being a doubting Thomas. And I saw her dunk this green ball. And I was like, oh my goodness. So I called my other assistant, Ross, and said, we got a girl dunking. And uh, went from there. What do you do when, when you actually realize this is a thing? She's actually dunking. Amazement. Because I've, I've been at All-American Camp and I've seen some of the women dunk. Um, but we're talking Brittany Griner, 6'7", Candace Parker, 6'5". And we should say that these are professional uh, basketball players. And I went to the next open gym with Ross, my assistant, and said, I got to see this. And so I introduced myself to Fran. And um, at the end of the open gym, I said, can I see... So I gave her the little uh, green ball, and she went up and actually flipped her wrist and dunked it. So all the girls were screaming, obviously. <laughs> and um, I put my hand up against her hand because I thought, her hands look so big around this ball. And sure enough, she has these very, very large hands. And I thought, well, try palming a volleyball. So I gave her a volleyball, and it was nothing. And that's when my assistant Ross and I said, if we can actually teach this young lady how to play basketball, I'm telling her that the sky's the limit because I've never seen – somebody her age do what she's doing at that age, 14 years old, but never play basketball. So it's rare for a 14-year-old. It's rare for a 14-year-old girl. It's rare for a woman to do this. Why is that so rare? Um, I just think, one, the hands are smaller. They can't palm the basketball, so they have to use two hands to flush it. And, and Fran can palm a ball. She can palm men's basketballs. And it's been about 17 months now, and you've played uh, two seasons on the varsity team, and you started from square one. You didn't know the fundamentals of basketball. How, how has that been learning everything that you've learned in such a short amount of time? I mean, it's definitely been a process because um, it's it's hard to, to go from watching it and not understanding what's going on and then playing it and trying to understand what's going on. So, like... It's just been a process of just learning, practicing, just understanding a lot of the rules, like the three-second calls and, like, why you're fouling for certain things. Coach, what's it like working with someone like Francesca since you've not only coached her in games here in Colorado but around the country too? It's a joy. To interject what she was saying, she makes it so simple. But you're talking about her first varsity game when she was in California – and she she gets the ball at center and just runs full speed and makes a layup without dribbling. <laughs> and I look at my assistant, all the girls burst out laughing. And then my assistant gets upset because here's a young lady that doesn't even understand the rules of the game yet, let alone 
the little things like reading screens or the, the game of basketball is very hard to pick up. So it's a testament first off to how smart the kid is because when we had the open house last year, November, she's at the math table. And she's not at the basketball table. And I'm like, Fran, get over here. We're trying to encourage young eighth graders to come to Regis. And she picked up the rules pretty quick, was doing 360 passes to the corner. Where I said, just make the easy pass. Like she, the stuff she saw on the NBA or, or whatever was how she learned how to play the game. Whereas a coach, you're trying to teach, like she said, double dribble, three seconds. Those fundamentals. Yeah, fundamentals. Before we get to something Jordan-esque. <laughs> did, did you know what you were doing was rare for a woman to do. No, I really didn't. Um, I thought, like, guys dunk, so, like, maybe I figured girls could dunk, too. Well, because you'd, you'd been seeing her dunk in practice, but yep. she didn't dunk in a game until last month. Isn't that right? Correct. What happened when she finally made that dunk in gameplay? Yeah, we're playing Grand Junction on a Friday night, and she was out for about three weeks with a sprained ankle. Oh. And during that period, we lost a game, and... Obviously, I was very frustrated not having Fran, but um, I think Fran was frustrated with not being able to, to go on the court. So like she said earlier about wanting to get out there, I'm sure she was just exploding inside. She got the steal and my assistant turned to me and said, she's going. And oh. she just took off. And probably the you know the most amazing thing was the team because yeah. she took off and the whole team ran to me. And the game's still going on. Right. They all so ran off to you. And I'm running on the court to go timeout. Time. I didn't want to get a technical foul because all the girls rushed the court. Take us into that moment. You, you're, you're on the court. You've got the ball. You're going to go for it. Take yeah. us there. My mind was kind of blank. And I just like palmed it. And then I went up for it. And um, I didn't think it went in because normally on the first, the first times I dunk, the ball like goes off the back of the rim and like flies back. Uh -huh. um, so I, like, I had to like check to see if the ball went through. And all my teammates were like, standing there like all wide wide-eyed like open mouth like what the heck we got to the bench and like everyone was cheering and yelling and the uh the announcer said something about like first girl to dunk and the crowd applauded applauded and everything and it was just it was just funny but um it was cool <laughs> and that's the video that everyone's seen where where you've dunked for the first time right yeah, yeah. we were we went across the street for dinner, the coaches go out and we sat at the table eating pizza and sports center went up and my assistant from years past is the head coach at Castleview. So Matt took the clip and sent it off to Max Preps and then it hit ESPN, whatever it hit, but we were sitting there having pizza and we looked up and top 10 plays, just every athletic person just, or anyone puts on TV and so we're watching it and five, four, three, and all of a sudden, what the heck, there's my girl and she's number one. And at that point... Um, I think that's when it really hit me, the impact, because the amount of college coaches, um, one in the morning, I turned the phone off, my phone died. And then for about five days after that, um, like you said, it went viral. It went to five different languages around, around the world. People from Europe, I'm from Canada, all my friends back home. Is that your kid? I was like, yeah. You can see that dunk at cprnews.org. Was it that instantaneous? You uploaded it and boom, it's on ESPN or did it take a couple of weeks or, or? Oh, no. No. Really? I, no. <laughs> no. We went back home and we were watching Disney Channel or something and then our coach texted it was going to be on ESPN. So we turned it on and like the same thing that like coach went through, I'm watching it and I thought I was going to be like number 10. Gets all the way down, it's number three. Two NBA guys. So of course I'm thinking it's going to be another NBA guy, but 
there I was. And number one, and it was like 11 p.m., maybe like three hours after the game had ended. And I was just surprised they got it up so quick. And then, but it was just another dunk for me. So I thought it would be over by the next day. But um, no, it definitely wasn't. (laughs) It's still blowing up. So it was funny for me. And coach, you've been contacted by over 200 colleges with Division I basketball programs about Francesca. That's unusual, right? I've had a lot of girls go Division One. I. I read just we've had 32. I've never in my life have had that many coaches call, hey, we got an offer. Hey, if she doesn't want to go there, we have an offer. Um, in fact, yesterday I didn't tell her, but she was uh, voted player of the year in the conference, which is huge, especially for our conference. Now, now why is it so huge? Because, of course, I mean, well, I'm assuming because she's brand new at this. <laughs> exactly. Um, the past winners have all been high major Division One players. And for a 15-year-old sophomore to be chosen – pretty incredible how does that feel for you <laughs> it's cool i mean couldn't do it without my teammates like they're they're just always there trying to keep it keep it all in check and then just continue to play as a team and it's <laughs> a lot thanks to them but i guess a lot to me too so it's been cool it's cool is there a basketball scholarship in your future is this what you want to do or do you want to pursue this after you graduate yeah from, from i mean i love to play basketball in college i don't know i'm still a sophomore <laughs> i still have I guess another couple of years before I think about what college I want to go to. So I'm just going to try to enjoy that, keep playing with my team. And Well, what about being a role model? People look up to you, literally, I know. and also, <laughs> you know, figuratively. I mean, it's it's funny. I know, like, some of my sister's teammates on her club team are like, like they they all love me. And it's just, like, interesting. And I know my mom talks about it all the time, like, with this dunk. And I'm like giving other little girls like hope that maybe they could do it too and they all just really look up to me and she always says that um my attitude and how I act like that that'll that's what goes behind it and if I'm a role model now I have to like make sure my attitude matches it Francesca coach thanks so much for being here thank Thank you. you Francesca Belibi is a sophomore at Regis Jesuit High School in Aurora her coach is Carl Maddie this is Colorado Matters from CPR News 